I believe the culture is very invested in our being estranged from our true desires because then, and Clark and Perdita talk a lot about this, is that once you claim your own desires, you know, advertising never hits the same again. You know, you can't be um, manipulated or sort of told what your desires are. Buddhist monk and a former Catholic explore the power, pleasure, and mystery of spiritual practice outside of institutional religion. I'm Shane the Catskills, an artist living at the intersection of social justice and spirituality, who spent a decade living in a Zen Buddhist monastery before re-entering lay life in 2019. And I'm Peg Conway, a writer, energy healer, and motherless daughter. I anchored myself in the liturgical rhythms of the Catholic Church for my entire adult life until I just couldn't anymore. In our previous episode, we talked about death and ritual. In this episode, we're talking about the role of desire in ritual. So, Shay, how are you arriving? Um, Well, since we've just been having a little um, pre-discussion before the episode, I am arriving to this moment quite... um, carbonated and excited to have this conversation. Um, We are continuing our ritual of meeting early in the morning to record these. And that feels very, um, that feels very good. It is gorgeous here in the Catskills. Um, We need rain um, and it is very gorgeous. We're having this sort of nighttime insect symphony going on. And it's, I love that time of year so much. So I would say that I am arriving um, excited and ready. What about you? Well, the use of the word carbonated just always cracks me up. I remember (laughs) early in our discussions of this podcast idea, we were carbonating all the time. Um, Yes, I am arriving um, anticipatory. Like I looked, we haven't, we took a little break from, we took a little longer interval than we had been. And uh I was look I was looking forward to getting back to it. Um, it's kind of hot and cloudy here. We've had uh, well, we've had a bit of rain, not a, not so much, but the, it's been very variable weather. Like one minute it's cloudy, one then the sun's bright, and so. But that's summer. It's good. So, um, launching into today's conversation, we are talking about desire, um, which I feel like we could probably do. A whole season <laughs> on it. So let's just crack this egg. And um, maybe, maybe we could start by, um, do you want to say a little bit about like, why you wanted to talk about this, why you sure. feel like it's important? Yeah, sure. Well, the inspiration came because uh, we are both involved in the way of the rose uh, ongoing 54 day novena in which I mean, the one novena falls, follows right on the other. There's a couple days break. And for the first 27 days of the novena, you pray for your desire, your what you need or your desire. I mean, we use the word desire. Sometimes for people, it truly is a heartfelt need. I need a new apartment. I need a car that works. I need a job, those kinds of things. Or sometimes it's please help me, you know, in my creative pursuits, or please, you know, help me heal my relationship with my son or things. So desire can mean so many things. Um, And that's partly why we want to talk about it is because desire is such a 
maligned. It's maligned or it's diminished. Well, we'll get there. But um, so the first 27 days, we pray for the desire. And the second 27 days, regardless of where things stand with the prayer, we give thanks for whatever insights have come. And often, often there are insights, even if they're not the exact answer that has been sought. Um, and there's also communal support by gathering with other people for to pray the rosary together. Um, so I believe Clark and Perdita kind of intuited this process, received guidance to to follow this process. It his was originated, I don't remember when, somewhere in Italy with some somebody prayed this way for their somebody's healing from an injury or an illness. So it's, it has some background, but th- this is this is sort of like a walking prayer, like each day, you know, there, there's a rhythm to it, but it's not fast. And it's based, you know, nine days is a typical novena. So it's a multiple of nine. I, I, I think of that. I don't know if that's like crucial to it, but, but it's kind of two moon cycles. We talk about it that way too. It's not directly lining up because for calendar purposes, it's easier to kind of schedule it a different way, but it's, it's loosely aligned with the moon. And so it's, it's a, it's a continuous steady pace, but it's not a rush. It's not a, a pressured kind of situation. And so the a new, a novena typically ends on a Monday and the new one starts on a Thursday. So, you know, toward the end of the novena in the middle of days there, it's time to think about, well, what am I going to pray for in the next novena? And you have always, I have heard you say it's not a productivity exercise and it's not a self-improvement process. And that is such an important clarification because it's so easy to say well help me lose 10 pounds is my desire well is it <laughs> i mean is that really the desire um, or who whose desire is whose that really? desire is that so yeah so my my uh yeah i mean i that's maybe that's enough for me to say right now like i, I could say my very first novena intention was the one of the most heartfelt prayers I've ever made. It was I, my first joined uh, the process in the summer of 2020. And our granddaughter had just been born in May. And of course, we were still kind of in lockdown and they lived in a different city. And it was it was heartbreaking to me that I could not go when she was born. I could not go and you know help them in by making meals on site or doing their laundry or walking their dog. It really was very hard on all of us. Um. And I was so worried that I would never get to bond with this baby. Like, not that I don't believe that, you know, oh, the first few days or months are so important, like the only way to bond with a child, but they are, they're kind of special. And so my prayer was, please let me be a grand- grandmother to this child. And it it came about like in, in a way, in just very subtle ways, we got to go visit, I got to have some special moments with her. And I... It, it was truly a desire. Like it, I, 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 I could feel it when, you know, and it's interesting to think about now with all the other prayers I've made and kind of spun around mentally that a desire feels a certain way. It feels mm. really, um, what word it sort of buzzes or it tingles in a, in a very soothing way. It's not like a seizing up kind of, Oh no, feeling it's a, Ooh, that feels good. I love that distinction between sort of an anxious, you know, clenching. Should I pray for? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for that um, outline. And my thought is to actually link in the episode notes to an episode where Clark and Perdita talk more in detail about the history of the 54 day novena, where it comes from. You know, they actually have 
had a lot of podcast conversations that I think are spell out really beautifully different aspects of this. Cause we're going to sort of talk about it from our own experience. And we, you know, I wanted to sort of tie in, you know, desire to ritual and sort of talk about the form of the 54 day novena as a ongoing ritual. So the ingredients of this ritual are 54 days, your desire, your prayers, um, your gratitude. So your rosary beads, your rosary beads, the people that you're walking this journey with, right? These are the sort of elements of the ritual and that desire is kind of the catalyzing ingredient in, in the ritual. And, you know, we were sort of laughing before we, you know, started recording this about kind of our um, experience with desire in our previous, um, you know, institutional religious settings. And I was laughing that, you know, how many tens of thousands of times have I chanted the words desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. That's one of the, um, you know, sort of like main Buddhist, you know, chanting the four vows. That's one of the four vows. And, um, and so when I encountered the way the rose and this sort of this invitation to pray for my heart's desire, that has been the most confronting koan I have ever worked with. And every, and what's great about it is that every 54 days I confront it again, you know? And, and I think what's so confronting about it is that like, it's, it's rarely obvious to me. I spend a lot of time perseverating about like, what is my heart's desire, you know? And that has become interesting to me in the sense that I believe the culture is very invested in our being estranged from our true desires because then, and Clark and Perdita talk a lot about this, is that once you claim your own desires, you know, advertising never hits the same again. You know, you can't be um, manipulated or sort of told what your desires are. Um, there's something that, that there's a hole that gets poked in that whole mechanism of the culture, which really needs us to not... Um, be in touch with our, because our true desires, I mean, you know, I'm, I obviously I'm not going to speak for, for everyone, but as you said, they often don't involve like, you know, wanting a lot of money or, you know, people pray for financial things, but often they pray for healing. They pray to heal their relationships, to heal their bodies, to heal from addiction, to, you know, experience more joy, you know, not things that don't have to do with consuming in other words, right? um, is that actually, um, I think engaging with one's heart's desire starts to kind of um, take us outside of the, the sort of capitalist economic realm of activity and puts us in touch with a much more fundamental human activity of living connected and fulfilled and aligned lives. And I think the other way that the culture and capitalism kind of infects this process is what you were saying about like the shoulds and the the self-improvement project and, you know, the, the difference between a need or a should and a desire, you know, and, and it's something that I actually talk about when I read tarot for people, when we work on people's questions is to just look at what underlying assumptions, like you said about like losing 10 pounds. And I have heard people pray to lose weight for their heart's desire. And that's like, you know, that's real, but to, you know, to actually just interrogate a little bit about like, whose desire is this? Where did this come from? Why do I want this? You know, um, 
I remember my first petition was, um, I prayed, um, for our lady to teach me about the moon. That was my first petition. And, you know, that one's not done yet. You know, when are you ever done with that petition? You know, this novena, I prayed for my mental health and that was a, you know, similar, I think, in feeling to what you were talking about with your, your grandchild of just this, like, no, I really, I need this. I need help with this now, please. And, um, you know, and it doesn't have an outcome. It it doesn't have an envisioned outcome. Please make it so that we can do that. No, it was, please let me be a grandmother to this child. I didn't know what that, I didn't really know what I even meant other than Mm. it was. And I think when you pair the word heart's desire, that that adds a sort of vibration of depth like it's not just a i need this it's a this is really like my taproot this is where i'm coming from and that's as you have said religiously and culturally we are we are not attuned to that very well we are and and there are many many forces that cause us to be drawn away from what that might be whether you know, it's ads, it's scrolling, it's, it's so many things. I feel like that's such an important point that you're drawing out this, you know, I would attribute, especially this desire for control to control outcomes as really like white supremacy culture is marked by a desire to control. And so what you're talking about is like how you frame your heart's desire. You know, it's very, it's very different to say, you know, you know, please give me a relationship with my grandchild. Let me be a grandmother to this grandchild than praying for specific. So, you know, in one of the ways that I think that the heart's desire question is generatively confronting is that it invites us to get to the heart of the matter. Like you're saying the tap root and not be so um, circling around what we think the outcome needs to be you know? Um, and that's a, I think that's a very different approach. And, you know, in, in that way, there have been things that I prayed for. One heart's desire was about praying for sobriety and the way that that, um, petition got answered was very different than how I thought it was going to get answered. And, um, I have this, this feeling sometimes when I'm, when I'm formulating my heart's desire of like, you know, kind of get it right, because yes, if it's not, yes. then you're going to get like, you're going to get like a curveball. You're going to get like a, you know, a gotcha. And, you know, Clark and Perditas always say that like our lady doesn't do gotcha, right, you know? Right. And I feel like that's a, also sort of a symptom of the culture, right? Like one wrong move and you're done, you know? Well, and I think that's, that's related my experience with that is very, as I reflect on it, is very related to my religious formation, where in the Catholic Church, there's a certain way that things are done. I mean, that people deviate, you know, and that's actually a cause of friction sometimes about it. Are we going to do it this way? Are we going to say these words? And which one is going to prevail here? Um, But that the the form is, there is a form that is correct, and and it's going to be done a certain way. And there's not as much encouragement toward creating one's own form. And the 54 day novena is not an absolute like thing. Like people change their petitions after a while, or 
that, I mean, and many other prayers come up. It's not like it's a, it's a box. I think of it as more of a weave, like it mm. provides the sort of overall kind of rhythm, but there are innumerable prayers that come up. Somebody gets sick and they are having surgery. So then there's like an uptick of prayers for this particular intention. And so it just kind of goes with life. It, 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 it goes along with what's happening. It doesn't constrict. It doesn't mm. decide how, how things have to be or like, Oh, we can't have that prayer. Cause this is my prayer. Well, you can change a prayer. You can add a prayer. I mean, it's, it's so it comes from within in a way that I have not experienced to such an extent. And it was actually a huge adjustment. Like it was unnerving upon arriving in this setting, like, well, isn't there a right way? I mean, I didn't, I wasn't even, I wasn't even fully aware that that was what was buzzing in my brain, but this notion that things had to be right or had to be, there was a certain external standard. And I, I shared with you, um, I think at some point, and I can't remember if it was on a podcast or in a personal conversation that I've been rereading old journals from the 1980s when I was in college and first out of college. And it's been so interesting to revisit my old self and and she was very much in search of an external, like a standard of, you know, what's the right way to live? What's the right career to have? And uh, it's uh, it's just really interesting to reflect on having kind of moved from that. And I've been revisiting an author who I read in college, May Sarton from the Northeast, poet, essayist, um, journal, published journals, oddly enough, um, and novels. And Journal of a Solitude, we read, I think, in a women's studies, women and creativity, I think the course was called in about 1984. And it was my first exposure to like feminist literature. And I've been rereading this book. I don't know why I just felt moved to do so. And it turns out that she was the age I am now, 58, when she was writing it. And it covers, it starts in the fall of 1970 and continues, I don't know how many years, I'm only halfway through, I only read a few pages a day. Uh, which is the year my mom died. So it like has all these synchronicities weirdly, but this passage I read recently that like, oh my goodness, this is related to the heart's desire. Uh, she lives alone and it's long winters in New Hampshire. And so uh, she brings in flowers and uh, you know has flowers in the house and has uh, bulbs that she grows inside as a sort of color. So after I had looked for a while at that daffodil, before I got up, I asked myself the question, what do you want of your life? And I realized with a start of recognition and terror, exactly what I have, but to be commensurate, to handle it all better. Yet it is not those fits of weeping that are destructive. They clear the air. What is destructive is impatience, haste, expecting too much, too fast. And I was like, Oh, wow. That's, that's the heart's desire. That's like, it felt like old me in like lessons of the eighties coming back today to remind mm. me. And one of my petitions last mm, few months, maybe a year ago, half a year ago was teach me to live in gratitude for the abundance I already experience. And I think about that often that prayer still comes back. Like I really, but I think, as you said, the culture makes us uneasy. Like there's always this feeling of FOMO or like I should yes. be doing something better. Um, but I, you know, rather than I really like today, I like what I'm doing today. I don't need to be looking around for more or better. I'm, I'm good. I'm enough. 
I love that. It reminds me of my petition um, of maybe a year ago that was, let me be satisfied with the life I already have. And, um, you know, the Buddha had a teaching on learning how to be satisfied, knowing how to be satisfied. And, and that's something that I think about a lot. So, so that's also what you're talking about, <clears throat> about hearing other people's petitions, hearing other people that the, the, we, you know, you talk, so there were so many things that you said, actually, that were amazing. The kind of the weaving of the novena as sort of, it's not this rigid container, it's actually adapts to your life. And, you know, from an institutional perspective, you know, it's kind of like, well, that's a very slippery slope if you start just letting anyone do anything. And I think the thing that's so radical about Way of the Rose is um, we're learning that we're actually trustworthy, that our desires are trustworthy. And that I think that institutional religion really needs us to believe that our desires are not trustworthy. And it's not just institutional religion, it's the culture as a whole. Um, and so, you know, people will join a novena like halfway through. Um, it's like, and people in the, at the beginning of a novena who are doing their first one is kind of like, where do I sign up? And like, you know, and you know, there's no- I asked that very question. Yep, right. Is there a registration? Right. No formal commitment. No, like, um, you know, people share what they do, but there's not a prescription. It's like, you can do a novena and not pick up your beads the entire time and nobody's checking up on you. And that the meetings are there for support and they are supportive because this is what we're saying about. So in the in-between days, when a novena ends, there's a day where people reflect on how it went. And then the next day people sort of post what they're, what they're going to, their new petitions are going to be. And you can kind of scroll through and see. And I remember someone <laughs> <laughs> love him so much was like, you know, I was like, didn't know what to pray for. It's like scrolling through what people, you know, and was shopping like, oh, for a petition. Yeah. Shopping for a petition. And I found <laughs> that sounds it, good. you know, and it's kind of like, you know, there's a way in which you could be like poo poo that because it's like, well, it's not coming from inside. It's like the whole sort of expectation of like purity, a purity of intention and the way it's supposed to be is just dispensed with. And when you go to a meeting, when I go to a meeting, which has actually been a while, I should say, um, and like, there's no, nobody frowns upon that. Um, that when I go to a meeting and we pray the rosary and then people make their petitions to hear someone be like, this is my heart's desire is incredibly intimate. And there's a way in which people speak their desire out loud to other people. We receive that from other people. We're witnessed by other people and our petitions begin to weave together you know, that like someone will be praying for something and another person's like, oh, actually, do you know about this? Or, you know, someone needs something. And, and it's, it's not about trying, it's, we're not fixing each other's problems because the petition is not a problem that needs to be fixed or solved, but there's something very powerful that happens in my experience when people are sharing, are invited to consider what they desire and then actually speak that out loud to other people and very briefly because it's a group and so you don't you don't go on and on and the and the restriction on going on and on i think or the discouragement from going on and on no one is cut off normally um is is by honing it down then you, you it 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 inhibits the 
in the tendency to like justify well I feel this way because and you know and this happened you know like no it's okay just say the desire straight up you don't need to explain it or justify it or elaborate it's it's it is good as it is I find it very powerful when it, those distilled please help me blah 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 okay yeah and, and really- I don't know anything often I know nothing else about that person I don't know much about their life I don't know about their situation but I am wholeheartedly present for that prayer and they're likewise with mine it it is a unique it is a unique experience i mean consider that what we what it is that we know about each other is what we most desire (laughs) is there anything more profound to know about another person actually you know and i have to say that discussing this in a venue that is going to be publicly available is a little bit edgy for a little uncomfortable for me the background that i grew up with just personally and religiously as well as culturally one did not speak of desires exactly one spoke you know we fulfilled responsibilities or we did what we were supposed to we you know proceeded along the trajectory of life and and i think the religious formation that I had that was most meaningful to me in my adult years was intellectually rigorous and enjoyable that way. And it wasn't completely without heart. I don't want to say that at all, but just the overall flavor of Catholicism tends toward, um, I don't even know how, I don't know what words to use. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to be dissing people, my loved ones who are practicing in that faith. Cause I don't mean it that way, but it, I, it's just a, there's something, maybe it's just, it's personally vulnerable to share your desire, to speak of your desire and to pray to a mother, you know, a mother, the great mother or whoever, what, by whatever name you like to call her, it's humbling. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, rather than gathered in this powerful group, singing loudly with the, the, uh, presider's arms high up and you know all this majesty it's really down on the ground like please help me make my rent or please help me heal my relationship you know those that's that's a cha- that's the the sea change for me that feels vulnerable it just feels vulnerable we i i grew up in a environment where we tried to look good or we tried to present our most capable front to the world mm. and this is not this is really a uh disruption of that. Oh my God. Yes. It's so radical to ask for what we want and what we need, you know, to believe that it's answered. I mean, that's the other, that that it can be answered. Yes. We used to, there was a part of the um, liturgy at the monastery for a service that was, you know, when this devoted invocation is sent forth, it is perceived and subtly answered. And I think about that sometimes. <laughs> yes, indeed. And also that like, I feel like, mm, I'm not going to even say, especially anyone, I'm going to say in general, like to, to pray for your desire is like selfish. You should be praying for other people. Mm-hmm. You should be praying for the world. You should be, and, and we are really actively discouraged from praying for political causes and the world, we are really encouraged to like root down into our own heart for what we desire. And I think that 
you know, I, I, it's not that I don't understand about praying for the world, right? Like, and I think that we're taught to fear our desires and, um, to not know what they are and to think that they're selfish, you know, in my, you know, religious training, especially as a monastic, the imperative was to bow and serve. And that was very much the spiritual activity was through service. And, and I'm not like, um, denigrating that. I feel like that shaped me and deepened me as a person and taught me, you know, a lot and is something that's, you know, I needed training in actually (laughs) very much. So, um, and something that I still draw on in my life when I need to do things that I don't necessarily want to do. And that that is a perfect, respectable hiding place Mm. to hide from my desires is through serving others. It's like the perfect cover. And, and again, like, as you've reiterated, I am not, this is not an indictment of, you know, anyone in that tradition at all. I mean, and for me, it was a cover at a certain point. It was a way of not contending with my own deep longings of really knowing who I am and what I want and what I want my life to be about. And that the things that I want are not the things that I was taught to want um, by the culture and by my religious tradition. And, you know, claiming that has been very powerful and grounding. And I love what you're saying about sort of the, the very earthy kind of humility, um, of, of praying for what we most desire. Mm-hmm. When I feel, I mean, I, I incorporate prayers for the world more as a, um, I feel afraid, please, you know, like I, I, I don't avoid my feelings, but I, I, I don't, um, elevate them by, distancing from them to pray Mm. for some disembodied thing that I have no connection to, but to pray as a, as just a person, I, I, this, I feel this and please help, you know, just what it's an amorphous prayer, but it's, again, it's a humble prayer of, and you're bringing it home. You're connecting it to your experience of fear or anxiety. I'm anxious. Sometimes I pull out through, I'm anxious, dear mama, please help me. Literally. I mean, that's, Oh my God. I do that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All the time. So what do you make of, um, our ladies messages sort of revolve around, you know, this is sort of, this is the ritual that we do every 54 days praying for our heart's desire. And, you know, the, the sort of messages and sort of teaching we could say of our lady is, is like the world is, you know, I'm, I'm taking, you know, I'm like, know what's going on over here, you root down in your life where you are, where your feet are on the ground and pray for your heart's desire. How do you see that? How do you experience or understand that sort of direction that we're, that we're being pointed to, right? Cause it's easy to look out at the world and be like, oh my God, like, you know, we, and we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode about rituals of civic engagement, but like, there's so much mess, you know, like, what do you mean you're pointing me back to my heart's desire? Like, how do you see that? I see it as kind of like, be your, be where you are and be, um, don't imagine that you can control all these big external events. Again, it's that be almost be a child, like be, you know, be where you are and be, 
um, feet on the ground, engaged where you are, rooting yeah. in the soil where you are, um, connected to the people that you're actually present to. Um, and it doesn't mean don't do, a, do what you feel inspired to do. Um, but don't, don't think that you can fix everything. I think that's, and don't, don't look for things that are outside your, and I, I, I really think that the rosary is, and I think this may be part of our ladies' messages too. The rosary is so grounding the beads themselves, even if all you do is just pray without it, you don't need a novena. You don't need me mysteries necessarily. You can, the beads themselves and just saying some prayers is calming to the nervous system. And I think ultimately that's what the message is about be grounded not activated and not shut down either both it's hard to not be one of those in this chaotic world we're in and i think for i can speak from my personal my personal experience that the the beads have been incredibly grounding in a way that nothing else, other things have not or maybe it's in combination with my other practices and things but it's it's just um i think that's i think that's what the world needs as much as anything else it needs more people to be grounded in a in a regulated nervous system not reactive because i was just reading something yesterday where gosh i was probably in a scroll one regular one regulated person in a group can change the whole trajectory of the group's progress it might have been something you shared actually um and i i just thought about that in relation to the rosary just having a spiritual practice that really brings us back to ourselves um in a powerful way is is really important. Mm. Thank you for all of that. Yes. Yes. Co-signing. I mean, I have them in, you know, I have my beads in my hands at all times, actually. Aww. I mean, I cause it that. really is my experience that it is very regulating. I mean, Perdita always says that, you know, a bead is like a nipple, you know, and it, that's the first thing when we're born, we sort of reach for, and it's kind of like the, we have, you know, 56 of our ladies nipples right here to just calm us down. Um, and what you're talking about, about, you know, one person who is regulated can, can sort of, you know, I think if COVID and every, anything, you know, have shown us anything is how contagious everything is, our regulation, our, our living a life from our true desires. I mean, we give each other permit when we do that, we give each other permission, right? When, when we take our own desires seriously and understand that like nobody's getting a gold medal at the end of this. Nobody is going to, you know, get their little gold star for being, you know, a good person, not going to happen. You know, it's like at the end of our life, it's like, did we live the life that we truly wanted? Did we love, you know, with everything that we had? Did we, you know, and I think that when, when someone lives like that, the people that they come in contact with experience something, you mm -hmm. know, that that mm -hmm. is contagious. And that in, in a world, you know, where, you know, anywhere you look is just designed to make us feel, you know, insecure and anxious and terrible to be in contact with people who, um, and there are legitimately things that are terrifying and terrible and sad, a thousand even percent. if the culture wasn't magnifying it, they objectively are right. And like, you know, the apocalypse has been happening in one form or another for someone at all times, you know, so, you know, in that sense, 
I really appreciate what you're saying about the, it's this not being activated and trying to move in every direction at once and not being sort of shut in and shut down. Which but, is, I tend toward more, I, I actually, well, I do both in different things. In the face of big things, I shut down. Interpersonally, I tend to become more activated. Mm, what a well-observed distinction about yourself. This is, this is recent. I, I, I've really become more attuned to my shutdown tendencies in the last few months, just really noticing them and really attending like Oh yeah. I'm feeling that way. Yeah. My style has definitely been like more activated, angry, whatever, but I've been getting in touch with my shutdown response quite a bit in the last couple of years. But you know, that, um, there's something about, uh, you know, there's a line from, I don't know if it's the gospel according to the dark, which is a teaching of our ladies, but, um, she says, I'm not here to monitor your faith. I'm here. I I'm here to support you. And that is something that I draw on a lot is that this ritual of the novena and this, you know, devotion as opposed to a practice, which is something that we are definitely going to talk about in another episode that, um, that devotion is being in relationship in a relationship that's not about gotcha or performing or producing, but that is about really being alive. Mm, well said. Well said. Um, are we bringing this in for a landing? I think we've, I feel like I said what I need to say today. That was really, um, we didn't know what we were going to talk about when we got on the call this morning. So that felt really delicious. Okay. Um, and I do want to bookmark devotion versus practice. That feels very juicy to mm -hmm, me in this moment mm -hmm. as it will leave that there as a little cliffhanger. <laughs> um, so in closing, the question is, who are you learning from right now? And would you like to go first or would you like me to? Um, I can go first. Great. Um, I am learning, the things that I'm learning from are all related to the natural world. Um, I may have mentioned before, you know, we now live on the fifth floor of a condo building that overlooks the Ohio River. I know I've mentioned that, but I, I am constantly witnessing turkey vultures and I've become quite fascinated with them. And I was doing some reading about them. And then I witnessed a uh, squirrel carcass. I didn't witness it directly, but I witnessed the results of the vulture where the squirrel was lying in the yard across the road and then a day later there was nothing left and my husband had seen vultures nearby and so that is just just riveting i don't know it's like that feeling like that heart's desire tingle feeling of wow there's something really here this is really profound um and i'm taking a course from a young woman who we both well you know her in person i only know her online sophie strand happens to be the daughter of clark and perdita um called On Myth and Mycelium, and which is connecting Jesus as a storyteller and all the, and the myths that he kind of came from, evolved from, or you know, was influenced by, um, relating them to the natural world in the form of like mushrooms and mycelium and, and the dirt beneath our feet and how things arose in an oral culture versus a, uh, and we're, we're only partway through the course, so I really can't do it justice. And her material is is immense and innovative. And she has a book coming out on this topic later this, is it next year or later this year? I can't remember. I think which. it's in the fall, the flowering wand. The flowering wand. Um, and then our mutual friend, Mary Kearns, who writes about the flowers and how they, I mean, literally it's like they speak to her and she 
presents these messages of about their beauty and what they're saying to us, inviting us to believing in our own beauty and trusting the natural cycles. And um, so that's, that's just incredibly inspiring to me. Mm, mm I love all of that. I was also going to say Mary Porter Kearns. Um, she's done a couple of blog posts recently that are, are about kind of like flowers in deep time. And there was just one line that keeps resonating in my mind from her last post that like flowers have been evolving for 125 million years. I've been like cogitating on that. I've just like dropped that in my being and let it percolate. Like, wow, maybe they have some like deep, deep wisdom for us. And the result of flowers was the escalation of other life. I mean, yes, it's just an amazing contemplation. I agree. Yeah. I feel like she is really channeling something like incredibly profound. Um, I am also taking a class with Perdita Finn called Time Travelers. It's a six month class with like 14 other people where we are um, having all of the conversations that I long to have my whole life talking about death. And we've been talking about death a lot lately, and I am so always here for that. Um, but in a, you know, in a really sort of the, the sort of practice that she's given us to do is daydreaming. And so as someone whose practice was, you know, focusing my mind and concentrating daydreaming feels like such a um, welcome change of pace. And finally, I'm taking a class with um, Adrienne Marie Brown and Sonia Renee Taylor um, called the, it's the Institute of Radical Permission. And we are in week three, unit two. Um, Unit one was about the body and unit two is about self-worship. And um, learning from them is just, um, I don't know. I just- Maybe you should say a little bit about who they are because they're pretty awesome in there and everyone might not be aware of Thank you for that. I'm going to drop links actually to Mary Porter Kearns and Sophie's book. And so Adrienne Marie Brown is a writer and facilitator and doula. And she has written several books, um, Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, We Will Not Cancel Us, Holding Change. Um, She wrote a novella called Grievers. And Sonia Renee Taylor wrote the book, The Body is Not an Apology. Um, Both of them are active on Instagram too. Yes. And they are just, um, I don't know. I just feel like between time travelers and radical permission, I just feel so... um, like I'm receiving such an infusion of inspiration and also affirmation of kind of the practices and and that I'm already doing and and the things I'm already thinking about. I'm kind of like, yes, yes. And I'm fine. What what you have posted about from them or shared with me directly, I've, it's so aligned with the heart's desire, like that being active in the world can be a pleasure and and build community. And it seems very on the ground in a, in a rooted kind of way. Absolutely. And it just feels great to be like learning, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is there anything special that you want to mention um, about anything that you're up to? No, I'm kind of enjoying a summer, I wouldn't say break, but I'm not doing anything um, significant, <laughs> nothing specific that I am putting out into the world to Love share that. at this moment. Yes. Let's put it, let's just yes. call it, let's leave it at that. Yeah. Professionally on hiatus for the summer. That's 
That's or great. Gestating, who knows? Planting seeds, who knows? Exactly, exactly. Um, I have started a series that I'm calling Tarot as Questions, and it's based on um, a deck called Tarot as Color by the um, surrealist painter and occultist Etel Cocoon. And I bought the deck some time ago and finally decided to take it out and get to know it. And I've been doing a daily practice um, where I pull a card and write about it. And um, so I'm posting that on social media and it's also living on my website under the tarot tab. It's called tarot is questions. And so that's some new work that I'm up to and um, just my newsletter and my, my um, tarot classes are going to pick up again um, in the fall. Mm-hmm. I am. I'm still doing my newsletter as well. And I'm, I'm thinking about some offerings for the fall, but who knows? Fantastic. Thank you for, so much for Thank this. Thank you. This has been fun as always. As always. And we will see you next time. 